Welcome to another episode of the Victory Baptist Church podcast. This podcast is a ministry of Victory Baptist Church in Valdosta, Georgia. To learn more about our ministry and the impact it has had in our community for over 50 years, visit VictoryBaptistValdosta.com. Now let's listen to today's message from God's Word. But there was a husband and a wife, and they lived up in the north, up in the Chicago area, and it was wintertime. And they decided that they wanted to escape the cold. And so in order to escape the cold, they thought that it would be a great time to go on vacation down in Florida. I don't know if any of you have done that. Maybe you used to live up north. You decided you were going to go on vacation down in Florida. Well, the wife had some things that she needed to take care of back at the house. So the husband said, that's no problem. Like any good husband would, he said, I'll go on down before you. Uh, I'll go on vacation a day early and I'll make sure to get everything set up. And then you can join me the next day. And so the wife, I don't know why, but she agreed to that. My wife would never agree to that, but she agreed to that. And so the husband left Chicago, flew down to Florida, and when he got there, got everything settled, got their arrangements settled, he decided to send her an email just to kind of let her know that he was okay. But unfortunately, he transposed one of the letters in the email address. And when he sent the email, he accidentally sent it to a widow who had just lost her husband the day before. Well, this widow opened up this email, and she screamed and fell backwards in her chair, and her family comes running in to see what in the world had happened. And they see this email on the screen, and here's what it said. It said, my dearest wife, just got checked in, all prepared for your arrival tomorrow. P.S., it sure is hot down here. (laughs) Now, what does that have to do with what we're going to talk about this evening? Not that much, but it is an icebreaker. And I thought that you might appreciate that. That's one of my favorite little stories, true or not, that, uh, <laughs> that you can tell. So anyway, would you, would you join me in prayer as we prepare to get started this evening? Father God, Lord Jesus, I come before you. I thank you for the opportunity to be here, to open your word and to read it, to see what it has to say to each and every one of us. God, I ask that you would help my words not to return void, but instead to accomplish your purpose, piercing the heart of every individual for your glory. For it's in the name of Jesus I pray, amen. So if you have your Bibles this evening, open them with me to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 22 is where we're going to be. So if, like I said, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open there. We're going to look there in just a couple of minutes. But before you even get reading in the story with me, I'll just give you a little bit of the background. This is the story in the book of Genesis where Abraham is called upon by God to take Isaac, his son, to Mount Moriah to sacrifice him. And I know that you know that story. And I know that that's probably a story, if you've grown up in the church, as I know that many of you have, that you've probably heard preached many, many times. You've probably, even you could probably quote the majority of that story because you know what it's about. You know that this is a story that is really a testing of the faith of this man named Abraham as he was given a covenant by God and then all of a sudden God comes to him and says, I want you to do something that seems to be in violation of this covenant that God gave. And so you know the story. Well, why do you know the story? Because this story is one that sticks out in our minds because it doesn't really seem to match the character of God. It doesn't seem to match the character of God because God made a promise to Abraham. And you know what those promises are. It's what we call the Abrahamic covenant. You know those covenants back in the book of Genesis when Abraham, before he even had Isaac, before he knew that he was going to be able to have a son, he knew that his wife wasn't able to have children. She was barren. She was getting older in age. But Abraham wanted desperately to have a child. 
I know what that feeling is like. I remember before my wife got pregnant with our first child, I couldn't wait to be a daddy. That's something I looked forward to my entire life. It was the opportunity to be a daddy. And I remember the first time that Amanda told me that we were pregnant, or well, not we, but she, she was proud. I didn't do much of the work on that side of it. But anyway, when she told me she was pregnant, I remember, you know, I don't, I don't cry that much. But I remember I put my hand on her stomach and I just started, I busted out in tears. I began to weep on the couch of our home because I just knew that God had blessed me with the opportunity to have a baby. And then, man, you know if you're a parent what those blessings look like as years and years go by. But I want you to imagine, you know, when we read the Bible, so often when we read the Bible, we, we view the Bible as, as just what it is. It's God's Word. It's, it's a living, breathing document that teaches us about the character of God. It teaches us about the majesty of God. It teaches us about the attributes of God. But it teaches us how God interacts with His people. And you and I understand that as we read the Bible. But what I think we fail to understand sometimes is that the Bible contains stories about real people living real life. Doing life just like you and I are doing life. These are real people. These are real sinners. Real people dealing with real problems. Having to wrap their minds around real life just like you and I do. And you know what, friend? You know what I think the Old Testament does such a beautiful job at? I think the Old Testament does a beautiful job at teaching the believer what the character of God looks like and how he interacts with his people. And so I don't know about you, but I'm passionate about the Old Testament. Obviously, we love looking at the New Testament. Right now, I'm preaching through a series on the life of Christ, and I've spent four or five weeks on the Sermon on the Mount, which is awesome. It's a lot of fun, but I love, I'm passionate about the book of Genesis. I've actually written a curriculum on the book of Genesis that I teach to our high school students uh, from Genesis 1 to Genesis 50, and I teach it over the course of an entire year. I'm passionate about this book because it teaches us how God interacts with his people. And so this evening, as we look at the story, here's my challenge to you. My challenge to you is to take a deep breath and take a step back for just a few minutes. Take a step back and I want you to insert yourself into the scenario that I'm going to paint for you. I'm going to, I'm going to be the best storyteller that I can be for you this evening. I want to tell you the story and I want to tell you the story in such a way that it, it paints a picture in your mind's eye as to what this man Abraham must have been going through when he got this command by God. And I want to paint that story, and I want you to imagine yourself being Abraham for just a few minutes. I want you to imagine yourself being in a scenario where God has laid something on your heart to do that doesn't match what you thought life should look like. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in a scenario where you feel like you desire to honor and glorify the Lord? You desire, you've dedicated your life to him. You've dedicated your eternity to him. You've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But now you find yourself doing this thing called life. And as you do this thing called life, now all of a sudden you feel like that God's laid something on your heart that he wants you to do, but it doesn't seem to match up with the plans that you had for your own life. Have you ever been there? Am I the only person that's ever been in a scenario where it feels like that God was speaking to you to do something that didn't make sense? I've been there. But I just want to share something with you. I just want to encourage you with something. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've trusted him with your eternity. You want to know what I think one of the challenges is, what one of the tragedies is? The church, we can trust God with our eternity, but sometimes we cha we're challenged to trust Him with our life. 
We can trust Him with all of eternity, but friend, that's just fire insurance for so many people. It's fire insurance. We don't want to go to hell. We want to go to heaven, so we trust Him with our eternity. But when it comes to living our life, haven't you seen those bumper stickers on the back of cars that said, God is my co-pilot? That's the most theologically incorrect bumper sticker I've ever seen. I don't want God to be my co-pilot. I want God to be the pilot. Man, this, this airplane ain't going nowhere if I'm the pilot and God's the co-pilot. Why would the most skilled pilot be sitting in the right seat? That's not how it works in the airliners. Therefore, I don't want God sitting in the right seat of my life. I want God being in the seat that's right in my life. You understand the difference? And so that's a theologically incorrect statement that people in this world make, but I think so often that's how the church views life, that we have a God coming alongside us that can do life alongside us, that can be there to help us in our times of need, but we don't dedicate our life to Him and we don't surrender our life to Him. And here's the thing. I, I've, been, I've been thinking about this for years. I also teach a class on systematic theology, the doctrines of our faith. Why do we believe what we believe? And I, this is a question that's plagued me, and it's before we even get to the book of Genesis, but I promise it's setting the stage for the story that I'm going to tell you. Why do people reject the gospel? If I were to just be silent for a few minutes, and I were to make you chew on that question, I bet you it would be pretty quiet in here. Why do people reject the gospel? The gospel is good news, amen? The gospel is still transformative, amen? The gospel, there's nothing about the gospel message that's bad news for anybody that hears it. I mean, I want you to think about the gospel, that the God in heaven loved you enough to send his son Jesus out of the portals of heaven to live a perfect life, to pay the price for your sins on Calvary's cross, to die a sinner's death but not being a sinner, raising again three days later, conquering sin and death to make salvation possible for anybody that believes. How is that bad news? It's not bad news, but why all of a sudden do we live in a world where people reject the gospel, where they reject the message of the gospel? It's not because they're rejecting the person of God. Friend, you want to know what the reason is? And I believe this is true. People reject the gospel because if they accept the gospel, they're accepting the fact that there's a God that's bigger than they are. And if there's a God that's bigger than they are, then they're not in charge of their own life. And if they're not in charge of their own life, they have to submit their will to the will of another, and they're not willing to do it. And because of that, they reject the gospel. And I believe that's one of the challenges that we're, that we're dealing with in this world right now. Is we have a world full of people that aren't willing to, to surrender the own authority of their life. And when they're not willing to surrender the authority of their own life, you know what we have? We have people that don't know the difference between what's true and what's not. We have a culture full of young people. Where the, where the society tries to tell you that you can have your own truth. You ever heard that statement before? Oh, whatever your truth is, that can be true to you. But you know what? That makes absolutely no sense. You want to know why? Because the law of non-contradiction says something can't be both true and untrue at the same time. My shirt can't be both blue and green at the same time. It's either blue or it's green. And when we have a group, uh, a, a society of young people that think that they can choose truth to be whatever they want it to be, that is a problem. You want to know why? Because the Bible says wide is the gate that leads to destruction, and many will find it, but narrow is the gate that leads to life, and few will find it. You want to know why fewer find it? Because they're being deceived by a world that won't teach truth. But I'm telling you from this pulpit, I know that this pastor preaches truth, and I need you to be proud of that. Amen. And I promise you, any opportunity that I have to ever open God's Word and to share it before man, I have a passion to teach truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God. Amen. And friend, I want you to understand something. 
Just because you're not in a coat and tie standing behind this holy desk that we call a pulpit doesn't mean that you're not in ministry. It doesn't mean that you don't have the same responsibility that Pastor Ward has or that I have. If you're a believer, you're in ministry. And you have a ministry no matter where you do work, no matter where you're employed. And you say, well, I'm not even employed. Well, let me tell you, friend, you have a ministry to your family. And I'm going to tell you right now, you can't expect to be effective in your ministry anywhere else until you minister to your family. It starts in the home. And the reason why we have a broken society is because we have broken homes. We have homes that are full of people that haven't taken the responsibility to rear children and to do what Proverbs 22.6 says about training up a child. And so I say all of that to say this. Sometimes we go through life and we find ourselves in a scenario where God lays something on our heart to do that doesn't match what we want. Friend, you have a decision to make. You can either trust God or you can trust the world, but you can't do both. You're either going to live for, the God, for God and against the world, or you're going to live for the world and against God, but you can't have it both ways. You've heard the saying, you can't have your cake and eat it too, right? You cannot live for God and for the world at the same time. So you either have to trust the God of the Bible, the God of Genesis, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, or you have to trust yourself. But I'm telling you, if you trust yourself, you are just taking one more step down the pathway of destruction. Why? Because you're not equipped to lead your own life. Now, I know that's hard to hear sometimes, but when we look at a story like this in the book of Genesis, I think that it does such a beautiful job at painting a picture of a real challenge that somebody was going through. So are you ready for the story? Here we go. Here's the story. I want you to imagine this. There's a man named Abraham, and you know who Abraham is. He's the father of the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. He's the patriarch of the entire Israelite nation that's going to come, the chosen people, the people that the lineage of Christ is ultimately going to come from. It's that Abraham, right? That Abraham who's married to that Sarah who was Sarai before her name was changed to Sarah when she had a baby at the age of 90. Can you imagine that? Imagine having a baby at the age of 90. Only a miraculous God can do that. And so there's a man named Abraham who's received a promise from God. And I want you to understand the difference between a covenant and a contract. God made a covenant with Abraham. A covenant is a promise between God and man and it cannot be broken. A contract is a promise between man and man and they're broken all the time. Now, I'm going to say this, and this is a little bit of a rabbit trail. It's going to take me 10 seconds, but it's important. I'm going to say it to you because I only have one opportunity to talk to you. I'm saying it to young people who are going to make a decision to get married one day. Friend, a marriage is a covenant. It is a covenant between God and man, and it is not to be broken just because you don't want it to continue in a relationship. And one of the reasons why our society is broken is because man views marriage as a contract. It can be broken when one party doesn't want it to be able to be continued. But marriage is a covenant. And a covenant is, is between God and man and it can't be broken. And the Abrahamic covenant was a covenant that God made with Abraham and it cannot be broken. And what was that covenant? God promised to make Abraham a great nation. He promised to multiply his people to be more numerous than the stars. You know what the promises were to Abraham? Now here's my question to you. I want you to imagine this. So Abraham's heard this, he's seen God be faithful, he's seen God do what God says he's going to do, but now he wakes up one morning and he feels that the Lord is telling him to take his son, his only son, that now he has this great pride in, and to take him to this mountain called Moriah and to sacrifice him on an altar. Now listen, I'm going to tell you, I'm a pastor, I believe that I have a close relationship with the Lord, I try to be more and more like Christ each and every day. If I woke up in the morning and I felt like God was telling me to take one of my precious 
precious little girls up into the, to a mountain somewhere and to sacrifice them on an altar. Friend, I don't think I could do it. Could you? I would think it was the bad tacos I ate the night before, and I'd, I'd, I'd count it to that, right? Can you imagine this, the, this man named Abraham? Abraham's the patriarch of the nation of Israel, but he's still a man. And if he lived in this day, he'd put his pants on one leg at a time, just like you do. Abraham's going through this incredibly challenging scenario. And I can't imagine what he must have been feeling. Imagine going to Sarah and saying to his wife, Honey, this is what I feel like God's called me to do. Can you imagine the faith that it took for Sarah to allow him to take Isaac out of their tent and to walk him down a three days journey to Mount Moriah? Nobody ever gives Sarah any credit in this story. Nobody gives Isaac any credit in this story. There was a me an incredible amount of faith, not only from Abraham, but from Sarah and Isaac as well. I want you to think about that. Abraham had so much faith he was willing to take his son and to take this three-day journey. So we're going to start reading in Genesis chapter 22. I'm going to read through verse 14 starting in verse 1. We're going to stop along the way and I just want you to understand. But I needed to paint this picture for you. And I needed to paint it in a way that you could understand what the challenge was. Because like I said, I think so often we read God's word and especially stories that we're used to. We read them, we gloss over the humanity behind them. We gloss over the real life behind them. And we just read them as stories in the Bible. But there were real people dealing with real challenges that God wants to reveal his character and his nature to you and I through what they went through. So look at what it says here in chapter 22, starting in verse 1. It says, And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham. Now, I want you to understand something before I move on because there's a theological question that comes up there. When you and I think of a temptation, you and I think of what Satan does to tempt us, where Satan tries to get us to fall. Friend, I need you to understand something. You and I don't serve a God that tries to lead you into sin. Don't ever think that you're serving a God that's trying to tempt you to fail. It's not the God we serve. It's not theologically accurate. It's the enemy that tempts us. Sometimes God tests us. He tests our faith, not trying to get us to fall, but trying to shore up the strength of our faith to see the resilience that we have through his power. There's a big difference. So the word tempt here in the Bible, I actually, I, I know it's here. I know that we, we, we can't change it, but I need to make sure that when we read it, we understand this is not God trying to get Abraham to sin. So, and it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, behold, here I am. And he said, now take thy son, or take thy son, thine only son, Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. And Abraham rose up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him. And Isaac, his son, and clave the wood for the burnt offering, and rose up and went unto the place of which God had told him. Now, we were just talking about this, but I want you to understand something here. God brings this to Abraham, and there's no time in this passage where we see that Abraham questioned God. That's crazy to me. There's no verse or two, not even one statement in here, where it says that Abraham stopped and said, God, is that really you? He didn't pull the Gideon fleece thing. He didn't say, God, if this is really you, I need you to do this for me to prove it. 
God, if this is really you, I need you to share with me one more time. God, if this is really you, why would you want me to do this? Do you see that? You go and read in your Bible. It's not in my Bible. It's not there. God doesn't do that. I, don't, I can't imagine the amount of faith that this man has. Now, I know that God has had conversation with Abraham. I know that. But imagine the amount of faith that this man has to hear that his prized possession, his son, I say it like that because that's basically what he is, a prized possession, his, his, his heir, his only son, the one that he had been praying for for almost a generation now that he had finally been given as a miracle from the Lord. This only son, God comes to him one night and says, I want you to take this boy and I want you to sacrifice him as a burnt offering on Mount Moriah. Imagine what the agony must have been in that moment. And imagine the agony in your life if God were to tell you to take a child, to take a spouse, to do something like that and to sacrifice. Imagine the, the fighting that you would have done with God. But Abraham doesn't do that. Now, what is the, what's the reason for that? What does God want us to learn from that very statement? You know what I think that God wants us to learn? Is somebody that's so in tune with his will can know when they hear the voice of God. And my question to you is, are you so in tune with the will of God that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt when you hear the voice of God? Are you so in tune with the will of God that when you hear the voice of God that tells you to do something that doesn't match your will, you trust God so much that you're willing to do it without questioning? Now that, friend, is convicting, isn't it? That's convicting. And that's exactly what Abraham does. Look at verse 4. It says, Then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes, and he saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, Abide ye here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. Now, I need you to understand this for just a minute. There's two things that I need you to understand. First of all, this journey from where Abraham was to where he was going at Mount Moriah. I said it a minute ago, but I'm going to say it again. It's a three-day journey. For three days, Abraham is walking step by step towards a mountain that he sees in the distance, getting closer and closer with every step forward, recognizing that when he gets to the mountain, he's going to lose his son. And he takes the step anyway. He stands there, imagine yourself on this journey, this pathway in the desert, and out in the distance is a mountain, and you realize that you have your son here, and you're, maybe you're holding his hand, and your hand is trembling in his hand, and as you take one step after the other, and that mountain comes into view, you recognize that you're one step closer to plunging a knife into the chest of your only son. Yet he does it anyway. But what he says in the next verse really shows the faith that Abraham has. He says, abide here, which he's telling his servants, you're going to remain at the base of the mountain. It's only Isaac and I that are going to go to the top of the mountain. Now, that would have been different than the norm in these situations because normally a man like Abraham, who was of means, he had possessions, would have had servants that he would have been able to take that would carry the offering up to the top of the mountain in order for it to be sacrificed. The, the patriarch or his son would not have done that. But this is different. Now, how do we know that Abraham has servants, that he has 
um, that he is of means. Well, if you think back to Genesis chapter 14, when Abraham is required to go and rescue Lot after the, uh, the conglomeration of kings have taken him hostage out of Sodom and Gomorrah, the Bible says that Abraham rose up his 318 servants and he went chasing after these kings, right? You don't have 318 servants if you're Poe. That's what we say in South Georgia for poor, right? You don't, you don't have 318 servants. But these 318 servants, not only did they work for Abraham, they, but they've been trained to protect him and his possessions. We know Abraham is of means. So these servants that went with him, they would have been the ones that would have carried the lumber or the wood or whatever it was up the mountain for the sacrifice. But Abraham says, I want you to remain here. But listen to what he says next. He says... I and who, the boy, will return. Abraham has faith before God even works his miracle that God is going to come through in the midst of his trial. Now I want to ask you a very convicting question. Have you been through something low in your life? Have you been through the valley? Have you ever been through a valley? Listen, I know you have, and if you say you haven't, well, you're a liar, so you're kind of in a valley, right? But in life, isn't this how it works? We're either in a valley, we're going into a valley, or we're just coming out of one. Isn't that how it works? Why? Because we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that has sin all over it. We have challenges and trials every single day. I know I do, don't you? When you're in a trial when you're in that lowest moment, that lowest place, and if I were to go around this room and I were to ask you to, to bring up, to, to churn up that memory of that lowest place, which I would never do because of the amount of hurt and anguish that it would bring up in the hearts of so many people, I want to ask you in that moment, where was your faith? Were you in such a desperate situation that you tried to take the reins of your life back in your own hands and try to get through your scenario on your own? Because that's typically how we do things. When we get desperate, we try to resume control. It's natural. We're survivalists as human beings. We have a survival instinct. We try to survive and we trust ourselves more than we trust anybody else. But you want to know what? It goes against human nature but it sure goes into God's nature for us to release the reins of our life into the hands of God in the midst of our darkest moments. And I'm telling you, as I stand here in this pulpit, that's a very hard thing to do, and I'm not great at it all the time. But this story sure does convict me that the God of the Bible that I've trusted with my life, that I've trusted with my eternity, knows best for me. And that same God is the God that wants me to trust him with the smallest of details and the largest of ones. It doesn't matter if it's a seemingly meaningless trial to someone else. Maybe it's important to you, and if it's important to you, it's important to God. Now, I'm not saying that to try to preach at you health, wealth, and prosperity because you know better than that. What I am saying is that you serve a God who desires a relationship with you. And the God that desires a relationship with you can only have a relationship with you because he loves you. And because he loves you, he cares about your life. He cares about your life so much that he sent his own son to pay the price for your sins when he didn't deserve it, but you did deserve to die. You know, friend, sin is always punished. 
and it's always paid for. It's either going to be paid for by you, it's going to be paid for by Jesus, but it's going to be paid for by somebody. And so Abraham, let's go in the story, let's kind of immerse ourselves for just another couple of minutes back into the story. And as we do that, I want you to imagine yourself back in this scene as if I'm painting a picture for you that you're seeing play out on the stage right before your very eyes. As if you're watching a movie or you're watching a dramatic production. I want you to allow your mind to go there for just a minute. And I want you to imagine what you're seeing. So Abraham is walking towards Mount Moriah with Isaac. And he says this to the servants that they're going to abide there. And then we pick up the rest of the story now. Look at what it says in verse 6. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac, his son. And he took of the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. And listen to verse 7. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father. And he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, verse 8, My son, God will provide himself a lamb. For a burnt offering. So they went, both of them, together. This is the moment where we see the faith of Isaac. We see the faith of Isaac. Let me tell you, Isaac was approximately 19 years old at this time. Abraham is over 100 years old. He, wasn't, he was 100 when Isaac was born. So if you do the math right, that means that Abraham was approximately 119 years old. Isaac was 19. Isaac is in the prime of his physical life. Do you think if he wanted to, he could have pulled his hand away from his father and run down the mountain and gotten out of the way? Absolutely, he could. Isaac's no dummy. Isaac asks the question, the, the, you know, the elephant in the room question, the question that everybody wanted to know, where is the lamb? Father, where's the lamb? Where's the offering? Where's the, where's the ram? Where's the, the lamb? The, anything. What are we going to sacrifice? We're here at Mount Moriah. We've been traveling for three days. It's not like you forgot your toothbrush. You forgot the lamb. Where's the lamb, Dad? Where is it? And Isaac asked this, and I bet you he's asking it as a rhetorical question because the servants have been left behind. That's weird. The wood has been put on Isaac's back. That's weird. Isaac and Abraham are going up the mountain together. That's weird. Don't you think that Abraham might have been a little off the last few days? He wouldn't have been himself the last few days? That's a little weird. So he's walking up the mountain, and imagine his 19-year-old son with his hand in his father's as they're walking up this mountain together with the wood on Isaac's back and Isaac grabs his father's hand and he looks and says, Daddy, where's the sacrifice? And imagine what Abraham could say. He could have lied. He could have come up with anything. He could have told him the truth. What's he going to say? What would you say if you were Abraham? He says, the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide himself a sacrificial lamb. And you can imagine the hand of Abraham trembling with every step because his, his worst fear has now been realized. Not only is he going to lose his son, he's going to lose his son at his own hand. That goes against every paternal instinct known by man. And they walk up the mountain. 
walk to the summit of this mountain. And this statement is probably ringing in the ears of Isaac over and over again. And he's waiting for God to provide. Have you ever been in a scenario where you just were waiting tirelessly for God to come through? And it seems like that you waited for an eternity. And you're still silence in heaven. How do we respond? The longer we wait, the less our faith becomes. But I need you to understand something about prayer. Prayer is always answered. There's never a prayer that's prayed by a saint that's not answered by God. It's either answered by with yes, with no, or with not right now. If you give me 30 seconds to a minute, I'd like to share with you how prayer works. Wouldn't you like to know? Do you know that we pray to the Father? We don't pray to the Son. We pray to the Father through the Son in the power of the Spirit. We pray to God the Father. But 1 John chapter 2 says that Christ is our advocate before the Father. But we pray to the Father. Did you know that in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, the description of the throne room of God is described? And I want you to know what happens when a righteous man prays. And I need you to be encouraged by this because it's important. If you go to Revelation chapter 4, and you don't have to turn there, but you'll see a description that John gives as he goes into heaven, and he gives this description as to what the throne room of God looks like. And when he gives this description, he gives it as if he's coming in the back of the throne room, he's looking forward as if the back doors are where John is and where the throne of God is where I am. And he sees obviously that God the Father, his throne is the central figure in the throne room of God, but around that throne of God are 24 lesser thrones, 24 lesser thrones in a semicircle around each side. What are, who's on those lesser thrones? Well, on one side of those lesser thrones is the 12 tribes of Israel, a representative from each, probably not the tribe of Dan, because Dan disobeyed God, it might have even been replaced by Manasseh, just like the 144,000 in the book of Re Revelation. We didn't have Dan, we had Manasseh, which was Joseph's son. But we have 12 representatives from the 12 tribes of Israel. On the other side, we have the 12 apostles. Well, it begs a question, who's the 12th? It's not Judas. I think it's the apostle Paul. You want to know why? Because it's not Matthias. Matthias was chosen by man. The Apostle Paul was chosen by God. I think it's Apostle Paul in that 12th throne. So we have 24 lesser thrones around the throne of God. Why do I tell you that? Because the Bible says in the book of Revelation that in, that in the hands of these 24 elders are golden bowls of incense which contain the prayers of the saints. And you want to know what happens, friend, when you pray? Your prayer is contained in this bowl of golden incense in the throne room of God by the 24 elders surrounding the throne of God. And whenever the angels, the seraphim say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come, the 24 elders get out of their thrones, they bow down before the throne of the Father, and they offer up to the, the Father the prayers of the saints. And friend, your prayer's in there. There's not a prayer that you pray as a believer that doesn't reach the throne of God? The answer might just not be now. But you still serve a God that's in control. And so Abraham is going up the mountain. He's going up Moriah, Mount Moriah. He's got Isaac with him. 
We see what Isaac says. We see what Abraham says. Now let's continue reading here in verse 9. And they came to the place which God had called them, uh, told him of, and Abraham built an altar there. And he laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And I'm going to talk about that in a second, but let's finish reading. And Abraham stretched forth his hand, and he took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called upon him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything upon him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes, and he, took, and he looked and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram as offering, and he uh, offered him up as a burnt offering in the, instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, which means God will provide, as it is said on that day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. Now I've got to share with you the last part of this story, and then I promise we're going to be done. So Abraham gets to the top of the mountain, Gets up there with his son Isaac. Abraham, with his hands trembling, as you can imagine, he takes his son, his only son, with his wife Sarah. He takes Isaac and he lays him on the altar. Now, I want you to remember Abraham's 119 years old. Isaac only got on the altar because Isaac was willing to get on the altar. But Isaac is now on the altar, and Abraham with tears streaming down his face, I'm sure, binds the hands and the feet of his son so that his son could not escape imminent death on an altar that Abraham built before God. And Abraham takes the knife that his son had carried up the mountain. He takes it and he raises it above his head to plunge it into the chest of his son. Now, I want you to understand what I believe happened here. I believe that Abraham didn't raise the knife and wait for God to intervene. If Abraham would have raised the knife and stopped there and waited for God to intervene, then Abraham would not have had the faith that God was looking for. You know, I believe that Abraham began to plunge the knife forward to the point of no return when the angel of the Lord had to stop his hand, recognizing that Abraham was going to go through with what God asked him to do. And I believe it was in that moment that God stopped his hand. And the angel of the Lord said, Abraham, do not sacrifice your son. I know that you fear the Lord. God has provided another way. Now, I'm paraphrasing that, but I imagine that's what it looked like. So in your life, what's the thing that God is calling you to do that's calling you to proverbially plunge the knife forward to the point of no return to where then God himself is the only one that can intervene? Is there something in your life that God has been churning your spirit about, churning your heart about? Maybe it's a sin that's in your life that you need to get rid of and you can't do it on your own power. Maybe it's a, a calling on your life to step into the mission field and to go and to do something that's scary to you. And it's something that you can't do on your own. And it's going to take the power of God in your life. Maybe you're in a broken marriage. Maybe you're dealing with something with your spouse right now. And it's going to take the power of God only in your life in order to restore that relationship. 
Maybe you have a child that's gone a wayward way, but you don't have the boldness in order to tell that child the truth to bring them back into the fold of God. And it's going to take nothing but the power of God in order to give you the strength to do just that. Friend, I want you to understand something. The God of the Bible was strong enough in the life of Abraham where he took his son to Mount Moriah, a three-day journey to sacrifice him on an altar. Abraham trusted God that much, and God came through. If God came through for Abraham, he will come through for you. Have you ever heard the song, I Lay My Isaac Down? Oh, man, it's a beautiful song. I wish that you could play it. But I don't, it's too late for that, I'm sure. But there's a song that says, I lay my Isaac down. And I'm going to ask you this question because I can't sing and I'm not good at even knowing all the words, but I do know this. The gist of the song is this. We're going to move into a time of invitation here just briefly. But the gist of the song is, what's the Isaac in your life? that you need to lay before the altar of God in order for God to have his way in your life to use you for his glory. Every single one of us has an Isaac in our life. An Isaac that we're holding on to as our own. An Isaac that we don't want to release. That we don't want to lay down. That we want to hold for ourselves. But God couldn't have used Abraham in the mighty way that he used him for generations to come if he wasn't willing to lay Isaac at the altar. What if God wants to do something radically huge in your life, but he's waiting for you to lay your Isaac down? Now, as we're in this time of invitation, I just want to share two things with you. I never go anywhere to preach where I don't share the gospel. If you're sitting in this room and you say, man, that's that's crazy. I know all the right things. I know all the right answers, but I've never made my faith my own. I've never placed my faith personally in this Lord Jesus Christ that you speak of. Friend, I want to tell you something, and it's good news. Salvation is simple. You want to know what the Bible says you have to do in order to be saved? Believe upon the Lord Jesus. It's that simple. You believe upon the Lord Jesus and you're saved. Well, what do I have to believe? You believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he did what he said he did. Let me tell you the story. It goes like this. God created the world and everything in it. He created man in his perfect image, but he created man with a free will. Man in that free will chose to disobey God through a thing we call sin. When God looked at man and he saw that man had disobeyed him, the relationship, the fellowship was broken. He recognized that man couldn't obtain that relationship back on his own. So he began his second greatest work after creation, and that was the act of redemption, where he sent his son Jesus out of the portals of heaven to live a sinless life on earth, to die on Calvary's cross as a perfect sacrifice, to raise again three days later, conquering sin and death, and making salvation possible to anyone who believes in him. And if you're sitting in this room and you need to believe upon the Lord Jesus for the first time, you can do it sitting in that pew. You can do it in your car. You can do it in the shower. You can do it anywhere. You you don't have to say a special prayer. You don't have to say a special word. You simply have to believe. You believe upon the Lord Jesus. 
And so in just a moment, I'm going to ask you in just a moment for your head to be bowed and your eyes to be closed. In just a moment, not yet. But when you do that, if you need to believe upon the Lord Jesus for the first time, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. But for the rest of us that have already accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, the invitation here is for you. The invitation is this. Tonight, are you bold enough to do business with God and to lay your Isaac before the altar? I don't know how you do it here, Pastor Ward. I don't know if you guys do old-fashioned altar calls. But I am encouraging you and I'm challenging you. If the Lord has convicted you tonight and you need to lay your Isaac down before the altar in just a moment, would you do that? Can the pianist play in the background? Can we get, can we get the pianist to come and just play in the background as we go into this time of invitation? I'm going to ask right now for just a moment that you'd bow your head and you'd close your eyes. No one's looking around. 